Hey, well, today we're going to start a new series. It's called Discipleship with the Gospels. We got a great, um, I don't know if we have it up there to throw up there, but if we do throw it, oh, there you go, Discipleship with the Gospels. Look at that. Um, so now you might be asking, Nick, how many sermons will this series be? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You notice there's four pillars. That's a lot of material. I've seen you go through all 12 prophets, so I don't think there's probably anything in your mind would think, Nick, you're just going to go through all four. How long will this take? Well, I can assure you, if we were to go through all four Gospels, line by line, maybe in about five years, maybe eight, I think we kind of get it done. Seven, maybe. All right, we'll just go for the solid seven. But we're not going to do it that way. Actually, my goal in discipleship, that's what we're calling it, discipleship with the Gospels. Uh, the reason uh, we're doing this is I'm not going to teach through every passage going through the four Gospels. But what I want to do is kind of in the series is kind of do something different where I'm actually coming to you with these are things that those you're discipling may ask about the four Gospels or things your disciples may need to know about these four books of the Gospel. Now, a lot of times when we first start getting exposed to the Bible, especially someone new, or maybe you've never read the Bible before, there'll be some questions that you may have that you'd run across. And so I want to make sure and prepare you for that. At the same time, there are some key passages in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that I find myself using all the time in any kind of discipleship, any kind of counseling relationship, that I find myself visiting over and over and over and over again. And so in this series, I also want to visit certain key passages in these four Gospels that I find extremely helpful, not only for my own soul, but I find myself multiple times in some weeks covering these passages. So I want to equip you with some understanding of common questions, but also key passages. Now back to the question, how long would this take? I don't know. It won't be five years. I don't think it'll be a year. I don't think it'll be that long. I think it's probably going to be more of a fall, but man, you never know when you start digging in and stuff, right? So it's hard to predict, but you know, but you'll know when I get there. So I became a follower of Jesus at 16 years old. I started getting exposed to the gospel message at 15. At 15, this, the message was promoted to me of you're a sinner. You need a savior as Jesus as your savior. So you won't go to hell. And I thought, well, that sounds pretty easy. I'm just going to ask Jesus to be my Savior. That's what I did at 15. I remember saying the prayer, Jesus be my Savior. I remember looking back at the preacher with like a, you know, did I do it right? Did I do the handshake right? He said, yes, I get baptized the next week. I even get a, I even get, um, you know, um, you know, what every good Christian needs is the, is the gold necklace with Jesus on it, right? I mean, like I got everything. I was ready to go. But week after week, I kept hearing the message of the gospel, the good news. That I'm a sinner and that I need a savior. And I kept thinking to myself, wait a minute, I already did this. I already know that handshake. Why am I so convicted that I'm really not a Christian? And the truth was, at 15, when I trusted Jesus, when I said that prayer, I had no idea what I was praying. I didn't even understand it, to be honest with you. All I, I did know I was a sinner, but if you would have asked me, are you a sinner that is deserving of the wrath of God? Are you deserving of spending an eternity in a place called hell? Do you deserve that? I would go, whoa, we're getting a little extreme here. I haven't killed anybody, okay? So yeah, I've been a little mischievous, snuck out the house, all that kind of stuff, like normal teenage stuff. But we're, you're going a little far if you're going to say, I deserve the wrath of God. 
Well, by age 16, hearing the message of the gospel, reading the book of Romans, at 16, the light bulb came on on my parents' tan couch one night where I was like, oh, I'm a sinner. Like, that sinner means I'm in, like, cosmic rebellion against God. Oh, I deserve God's wrath. Oh, wait a minute. Like, I deserve to, I deserve to go to hell. Like, that's, that's what I get. Jesus, I need a Savior. I need you as my Savior. Then I understood. Now, it's interesting. At that point, something started happening. It was already happening already. I, I was reading the book of Romans and, you know, but that was really God's providence because the youth ministry in that church who they kind of just kind of wrapped their arms around me and brought me in. And to be honest with you, the church that I landed in, it was a fundamental independent Baptist church. Anybody ever been in one of those fundamental independent Baptist church? They put the fun in everything, right? And so, I mean, they wrapped their arms around me. They loved me. They weren't snobby to me. When I came in, just to, when I came in, just about everybody in the church would come around and say hi to me. You know, that's what visitors do. They come and sit at the back. Everybody came by, you know. No one was playing around on their smartphones. We didn't have smartphones back then, but if they did, they didn't, right? And I just love going to this church. But what this church did is the youth ministry. All the youth ministry kids came and got me and kind of pulled me in the youth ministry. And they're reading the book of Romans. That's what they were studying. So that's really was my exposure, just reading Romans. But once I became a Christian, it was like almost this thirst and desire for God's word just grew inside of me. And I wanted more than the book of Romans. I wanted to read the Bible. I can remember at first um, opening up, I think it was Leviticus, and kind of being like, I don't know what's going on here. So then I turned over to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? And started reading the Gospels. I was like, okay, this, this is, you know, it was narrative. We see the life of Jesus. I mean, it just felt like it was very accessible. Except I remember going through this, having lots of questions that I couldn't quite solve. I had lots of questions that it probably would have been great if someone had been able to disciple me in this moment and help me with lots of confusion. So in this series, one of the things that I'm doing is also I'm reflecting back on, at times, what were the things I was confused with when I was reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? What are the things that kind of caught me at times? So some of that you're going to see come out in this series. I can remember having one big question, and we're going to solve that question today. As I began to read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this question of Jesus calling himself the Son of Man. I always found that very interesting because it seemed like he, we would see in the book of John, I would see him call himself, I would see this, he's the Son of God. He would receive that kind of acclaimed Son of God. It seemed like sometimes he was called Messiah, but it seemed like Jesus a whole lot of times kept calling himself the Son of Man. And I couldn't quite put my finger on what that meant. Over and over, you see that Jesus would do it. Now, I didn't know how many times, but now I can tell you, about 80 times we can see through the Gospels, we can see Jesus calling himself the Son of Man. So what does that mean? That confused me a lot that he would keep saying that about himself. The Son of Man. I, I could understand Son of God made sense, although I, didn't, I wasn't quite able to work out the doctrine of the Trinity at that point. But I could kind of get the idea of Son of God. Make sense? Or Messiah, the Anointed One, Christ. I can make sense out of that one. But he kept saying son of man. And I was kind of like son of man, son of man. What, you know, it, it, it kind of confused me a little bit. So today I want to kind of prepare us. And Bob, this is just disciple making. How to help the disciple E with this idea of the son of man. When you're 
when someone has come to the Lord, or maybe you're starting to read the, the Scriptures yourself, and you come across this designation, Son of Man, why does Jesus say Son of Man so much? What does that mean? Why is that important? Why has Jesus chosen that title so much? And does can we still call him the Son of Man today? Take your Bible and go over to Matthew chapter 26. We're going to flip through our Bibles today. Y'all okay with that? Or scroll through our Bible, whatever your case may be. Have it in your hand. Have it on your phone. I would encourage you to do this, though. Um, many people have found that, um, I mean, technology can be great. Amen? Amen? Okay, I only got one amen from that technology. I'm with you. The rest of us are like, oh, me, right? Did y'all just dream of someone grounding you from your phone? Y'all just have like this, like, like, please just ground me. Like, give me a justified reason for getting rid of this thing. Man, ah, I can get amen to that one. I would encourage you to do this. I've noticed, I've noticed the thing, because this past week, um, I was somewhere where I heard a message, uh, but I didn't have my Bible on me, right? So I was like, oh, that's fine. I got my phone. I got Logos, right? I can do it. Popped in there, checked it. But did you know what kept happening while I was sitting there trying to read the, the scriptures? Y'all know what kept happening? Text. Yeah, text, boom. Yeah, then like, you know, this newswire, this, all the notifications, bing, 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 right? Every little distraction. And I thought to myself, man, it's hard enough not to be distracted just listening to a message. <laughs> like, Lord, this was a lot more on me. And so then I began to think like, man, I wonder how many people hear me on Sunday morning and just struggle with that, right? Probably nobody, right? So here's what I do. If you're going to use your phone to scroll through your Bible, man, ducky, do it. You know what I encourage you to do? Maybe turn that Wi-Fi off for a little bit, right? Just download, download whatever text we're in, download the Bible as a Bible app, and just kind of take your phone and take it off of the internet. Why is that? Because you'd be surprised how distracted. Um, you know, it's even crazy. I used to do this years ago when I really liked to be on, so, on social media. Don't like social media anymore. I used to be impressed with it. it. used to be a fun place to hang out. Now it just seems like everybody's mad, right? But I remember back in the day, I would, I would look and it'd be crazy how many people in our church during the sermon, you could see the timestamp, were posting, right? I always thought that interesting. Don't worry, don't do it anymore. Like, so just so you know, if you send me a message on Facebook or Instagram or I don't even know, there, there could be more social media things I have I don't even know, I probably don't get the message, right? You just might want to call me. So I'd encourage you to turn that baby off. It's going to distract you, right? This is more important than anything else going on in life right now. Time with God's people, singing to Him. That's why, man, we want you in here. When we start singing, Unless you're serving, man, be in here. We don't want you wandering around out in the foyer. We want you in here, right? We want everybody in here. When we're singing, it's important. When we're praying, it's important. When we're eating a meal, it's important. When we're doing our edify time, it's important. It's important. God's people gathering together. So let's go to Matthew 26, and we're going to be looking at this son of man. Man, Jesus says it a lot when you, read, when you start reading the Gospels. I want to take one particular passage, Matthew 26. I think we can't read all of them. I mean, we could, but we'd be here long if we read all 80 passages. But we'll pick it up in Matthew chapter 26, verse 47. And Jesus is before, I'm sorry, verse 57. Jesus is before the high priest, Caiaphas. He's being tried by kangaroo court. He's been tried by the religious leaders. They're doing everything they can. They're asking him questions every which way they can. 
to try to accuse him. They really can't find any justified reason. But then they do something that's very interesting. They say something about who he is, and he assents to it, but also he quotes to them that he is the Son of Man. And they get pretty upset about that. Look in verse 57 of Matthew 26. Mark has a passage on this as well. It says in verse 57, Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas the high priest, where the scribes and elders had gathered, and Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us, that it, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. By the way, two words. We understand Son of God, Christ, Messiah, the Anointed One. These make pretty good sense, right? And Jesus said to him, you have said so. So Jesus kind of smart the way he says it, right? But you've said so. Jesus wasn't denying that he was the Son of God or the Messiah. He, when he says, you said so, he's saying, true enough, that's it. But then Jesus adds to it and says, But I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. It was very strategic for him to say that. It was very strategic for him to say that phrase, the Son of Man, repeatedly. That new disciple in Christ, that person who's just reading the Gospels, especially Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you're going to see that a lot. And that phrase, Son of Man, means something. Notice that after that, verse 56, And the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? That's the one that really got him, didn't it? When he said, You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. That kind of got their goat. In verse 66, it says, What is your judgment? And they answered, He deserves death. And they spit on his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who it is who struck you. So now there's an execution. But what he was saying in that verse was something really unique. There may be an execution, but there's going to come an exaltation. They didn't like it. But they understood what he was saying. Now let's look back in the Old Testament. To really understand this, you you want to kind of look back at the Old Testament. Because we're dealing with these Jewish leaders. They knew what this phrase, Son of Man, meant. And when Jesus uses it over and over, there's a point he's wanting people to understand about that phrase. Now that phrase really has kind of two prongs of meaning. Now, I will tell you this. A lot of times when you ask people, what does that phrase, son of man, mean? A lot of people will say, well, that just means his humanity. Son of God, that's his deity. Son of man, that's his humanity. And I would say there's an aspect of that phrase that's true. He was a man. He was human. He was 100% human, 100% God. This is true. There's no lie to anything of that nature. 
But I will say that that son of man also means a lot more than just that. I mean, I don't, there's no reason for Jesus to walk around in 80 times, really 79 times, someone else said son of man, but to walk around that many times and go, everybody, I'm a man. Everybody, I'm a man. Everybody, I'm a man, right? Although today, you may have to say that a lot, right? Back in that day, he didn't have to say those kind of things, right? So that word, son of man, actually meant something when you look at the text of the Old Testament. Now, we can't go through every text unless you'd want to, but let's go to a couple key texts. First, let's go over to John, uh, not John, that's not the Old Testament, Psalm chapter 8, Psalm chapter 8. Psalm chapter 8. I mean, you can go to John. We're eventually going to be there someday. I mean, five years from now. Some of you are thinking like, man, I like that just fine. I've always wanted to spend some time going through the Gospels. Now remember, we're dealing with first century monotheistic Jews Jesus is primarily doing ministry to first century monotheistic Jews who do know the Old Testament scriptures. They are familiar with the passages that we're looking at. Go to Psalm chapter 8, and we'll look at verse 3. When I looked at your heavens and the work, this is Psalm 8, verse 3. When I look at your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you set in place, the psalmist says, What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Now, the psalmist may not understand everything that's going on. They have sometimes murky pictures of the cross, but they were looking forward like we're looking backwards. Interesting, when you look in the Hebrew at this word son of man, the literal meaning is son of Adam, son of Adam. So when you look at this idea of son of man, when Jesus says that, There's one side of that that you want to understand. He's saying he's a son of Adam. Now, he's not the first Adam. He's the what Adam? He's the second Adam. So every time he uses this phrase, there could be, there is an aspect that he may be pointing, that he's pointing out that this idea that he is a son of Adam. He's the son of man. Not just, he is a human, and you you can denote that idea of son of man being, okay, his humanity, but really he's emphasizing some other things. One would be, he's a son of Adam. Now, why is that important? Because in Adam, everybody fell. But in the second Adam, everybody will rise. The first Adam results in what's going to be a terrible, terrible death, suffering the wrath of God. The second Adam will make it to where you don't have to suffer the wrath of God. At 16, when I became a follower of Jesus, I accepted by faith the second Adam. I mean, if you look back at Adam, you remember Adam in the garden, right? All the food we want, all the food a man could ever want to eat, right? He didn't have to pay for it, amen? All the land he could want, all right? All the land he could want. And a wife that liked him, right? All those things. Everything a man's ever wanted. And he said no to God. And by the way, walking with God in the cool of the day, right? You have Jesus come on the scene, the second Adam. He goes out in the wilderness, right? No food, no companionship. Doesn't have anything to eat, and he obeys God. You see two different extremes. Why is that? Because Jesus makes right all that Satan and man did wrong. He's the second Adam. He's the son of man. Now, it's interesting. He 
Jesus says that phrase over and over because he wants there's an aspect that people need to understand about him. That he is more than just this Messiah anointed that, that the Jews honestly, they really just want a political, they're just nationalists. They're just, they just want a political leader to overthrow Rome and kind of set up their kingdom. They're missing the whole full aspect of what the Old Testament scriptures spoke about the coming Messiah. And one aspect is he is a son of Adam. Now, in essence, we're all sons of Adams. We're Adam, we are. There's only one race, by the way, just so you understand. There's not many racers. There may be different ethnicities, but in the scriptures, there's actually one race, and that race is the race of Adam, right? That means we're, we're, we're all together on this. Our biggest problem is Adam's race, right? What Adam has done. Our greatest calling card and our greatest hope is what the second Adam actually did, the true Adam. That was interesting. Keep looking at verse 8. He says, Yet you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. You've crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the work of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. So this son of man would be a son of Adam. But it would be a son of Adam that's different from all the other sons of Adam. There have been many sons of Adam since then, right? There was, you, you know, remember the first son of Adam, right? Cain and Abel, remember those guys, right? One was evil, the other was murdered, right? So there's been lots of sons of Adam. But this particular one will have glory, dominion. All things will be put underneath his feet. So when Jesus says the son of man, the first century monotheistic Jew would have understood something from Psalm 8 when Jesus keeps using this. He's pointing that I am one of you in my humanity. I am a son of Adam. I am going to make right what he did wrong, but don't make any mistake. Although I may experience execution, I will experience exaltation. Now hold your place there. Go over to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. Now you may be thinking, wait a minute, Nick. That's not Old Testament, nor is that the Gospels. Why are we going to Hebrews? I just want you to see this in the text so you understand the intent. You can see the writer of Hebrews actually quoting from Psalm 8. And it directly points to Jesus. Go to Hebrew chapter, Hebrews chapter 2, and we'll start in verse 5. For it was not the angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. And then notice what's quoting. By the way, I love that he says it has been testified somewhere. You know, they didn't have chapter and verses, right? You know, just so you know, when Jesus spoke, he didn't go like verse 5, not verse 6. You know, that was something that was added later so that we could read and reference publicly in church and stuff, right? So if you ever think to yourself, man... I'm so bad. I can't remember the address of where that verse was at. No, it's okay, man. The writer of Hebrews is like, man, it's, it's testified somewhere, right? He knows it's in the Psalms, but he's like, it's in the Old Testament. So you're cool, man. Just focus on knowing the scripture. What is man that you're mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? Sound familiar? This is Psalm 8. You've made him a little lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. So the writer of Hebrews says, this Jesus for you, who the book of Hebrews is written to a Jewish audience, just so you know, just in case you've missed it, this Psalm 8, speaking of the Son of Man, that Son of Man is Jesus, who is the second Adam, 
who was executed, but also the one that is exalted. And it's through his execution that exaltation came. He looks, keep looking at verse 8, he says this, Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, you do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him for, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So the writer just says, let me just pull you back to Psalm 8 and that he is the son of man, the second Adam. And through his execution, there's exaltation and where he where he raises, you raise. Right. So. The son of man, when a new person starts reading the Bible and starts seeing son of man, that part of that aspect they got to understand is this is the second Adam, the second Adam who will make right all the wrong of the first Adam. Just as a side note, you might hear some people say, you don't need to read the Old Testament, just stick with the New Testament. Listen, you can't understand the New Testament right without an understanding of the Old Testament, right? And in fact, if you want to increase your devotion life, the Emmaus Road disciples after Jesus' resurrection, he actually unveils himself through the Old Testament scriptures. And does anybody remember what they said once they realized it was Jesus who had talked to them the whole time? What did they say? Did not our what? Our hearts burn within us? See, there's something beautiful when you start to see the grand arc of the Bible. When you start to actually talk with someone who's new in Christ and you're you're making a disciple and you're reading through the Gospels. You, you want them to understand the grand arc of the Bible is about Jesus. The grand arc of the Bible is not just to look at it and go, let me find just the legalistic way to live life, right? Now, there's tons of rules and commandments, and those are good, and we want to emphasize those. But sometimes people get caught in, they, they, get, they, they get caught in the idea of there's something bigger that God is revealing through what we call progressive historical redemption, meaning God is unfolding and unfolding and unfolding the good news of the gospel to come someday. Now, people may say, why didn't God just bring Jesus immediately right after Adam and Eve's sin? Well, because mankind wasn't in a position yet. There was a, there was a, what do we call it, marinating that humanity needed to do until God at the right time brought about his son. So we see that this idea of the Son of Man in Psalm 8 is the idea of this is the second Adam, the Ben Adam in the Hebrew. Now do this. Go over to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. So when Jesus uses the phrase Son of Man in his humanity, in his life, he is pointing to, I am that second Adam that was made lower, just like all the other sons of Adam. But the difference is, there will be an execution, but there will be an exaltation. We see that in Psalm 8. Now, we also see in Daniel chapter 7, this other side. By the way, there's other scriptures. If you were to read, we're not going to have time to turn to them. Ezekiel 2 through 7, Psalm 80. I think we could see some other nuances of this Son of Man. But for, for my purpose and intent here, let me just capture big thoughts here. Mainly, Daniel 7 is what most would... would would tip their hat to when Jesus uses Son of Man. And I would say, yes, this is, this is especially in Matthew 26 where we're going here. This text is what Jesus was directly thinking. But we have many different Son of Man passages to draw from. Go over to Daniel 7 and let's pick it up in verse 13. 
Daniel, being in a foreign land, Daniel being uh, a part of the exiled captivity that's in Babylon after the kingdom had been lost, the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom was already lost, the southern kingdom. We talked about that in the Minor Prophets. Look in verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of what, everybody? Son of man. And he came to the ancient of days. This is the throne of God, the ancient of days. And he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. And that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Now, if you read the wider context of what's happening, there's these visions that Daniel has of four kingdoms. All four kingdoms get destroyed because there is a true kingdom to come. Now go back over to Matthew 26. So here's what's happening. In Matthew 26, at the crucifi- uh, before the crucifixion, as he's being tried... Go back over to Matthew 26, of which you could go to Mark 14, even read his his account. Let's read back over here and go to Matthew 26 and go back to verse 63. So when Jesus, so when this happens... Daniel 7, 13 through 14 is fresh in the minds of, wait a minute, this son of man will do more than suffer. He'll also be exalted. So you see this idea of humility in Psalm 8 to exaltation. And then you see this exaltation, this, the kingdom, that this, this, he has glory and power. He has dominion languages people like he's the king he's the lord you see these two aspects of the son of man in, in daniel 7 and psalm 8 so when jesus walks through and keeps using the word son of man he's wanting people to understand some things about what his ministry is like and i think a lot of people missed it but if they knew their old testament scriptures they wouldn't have missed it jesus plenty of times telecast the nuanced aspect of the son of man now right here Actually, you know what? I don't even want you to look at that yet, all right? So I'm sorry, but we'll stay in the book of Matthew. Go to Matthew 17, 12. We'll come back to it, all right? I just wanted to see, did you know where to turn? Verse 12, Matthew 7, 12. Let me give you a couple places, and we'll come back to that. A couple places where Jesus says the Son of Man, but he's really referring to the suffering. Look over here after the mountain of transfiguration in Matthew 17, Peter, James, and John had saw the glory of God. They come down off the mountain in verse 9 of Matthew 17. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. <laughs> Basically, he was saying, until you, see a, until you see a Daniel 7 or the end of Psalm 8. But then he says this, And the disciples asked him, why did the scribes first say that Elijah must come? And he answered, Elijah has come, and he will restore all things. Referring to John the Baptist, verse 12. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. He's talking about John the Baptist. But then he says this. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Now wait a minute. 
Isn't the Son of Man in Daniel 7 like this conquering king? Yeah, but he also referring back to Psalm 8, right? Also, if you consulted some other passages like Psalm 80, we'd see that don't be surprised if there is some suffering with the Son of Man. They would have known this. So he was warning them, saying, hey, don't be surprised, the Son of Man will suffer. You just saw him in all his glory, but don't you forget before, I mean, you got to get a peak of his exaltation at the mountain transfiguration, but first there's got to be the execution. Now go over to Matthew chapter 24, and you can see in this Matthew 24, you can see the other side. He points out his exaltation. This is at a later point, talking about his return, the second coming in Matthew chapter 24, and You can look in verse 29. Jesus says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon should not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heaven will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the what? Son of man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So you see, he now says, I mean, didn't he say the Son of Man will suffer, but the Son of Man will also be exalted in the future, right? When he comes, he he will be the conquering king here. So you see, he uses this word Son of Man. It's not just he's a man. I mean, there is an aspect of that true, but it's this aspect of there is one who must undo all that the first Adam did, this son of Adam, and in his perfect and the execution, there will be an exaltation where he be, will be king of kings and lord of lords. And he will come back. Now, it's interesting. Now, you can go back over to Matthew 26. This is what I wanted to point out in Matthew 26. In Matthew 26, back over, where he's before the high priest in the Sanhedrin council. Verse 63, and Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by God, tell us if you're Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you've said so. So he's not denying that he is the Messiah. He's not denying he's the Son of God. But then he quotes Daniel 7, and it is pregnant with meaning. It says this, and Jesus said to him, I'm sorry, Jesus said, but I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? Why was he so mad at Jesus? Because Jesus basically said, you see everything that you're doing to me, I'm allowing that to happen. It's, this is not your plan, this is my plan. And this, as Psalm 8, as even Psalm 80, we didn't really get to look at it, portrays this, this is a part of the suffering that will lead to the Son of Man being exalt, exaltation. This is part of me. This is part of what's going to happen. So you go ahead and do what you're going to do, but this isn't going to stop what God's going to do. And they can't take it. They're extremely angry. They're mad. And they go ahead and follow off with their plan. But every time we see the Son of Man, there's aspects that Jesus is pointing out that Son of Man will suffer, will, will be the suffering Adam, but the perfect Adam, but the only Adam that's actually able to overcome sin. 
Their first Adam couldn't overcome sin. The second Adam could. No one else could go to the cross and help Jesus with this episode. Jesus is the only one capable of doing it by himself. Now, it's interesting when you see all that's happened here. I want you to turn over to something that's very interesting. Go to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. This is the recording of the first Christian martyr, Stephen. Go to Acts chapter 7. And verse 54 through 60, we'll look at it. So when you're discipling, when you're reading the Gospels and you see son of man, son of man, son of man, that is not just something to pass over. That's something to emphasize to, your disciple, to those you're discipling that this is saying that he is the only one that can undo Genesis 3. Right? And not only will he undo it, but he will suffer, but he will exalt. Right? He will be king of kings and lord of lords. All will bow down to him. He has all authority. He is drawing all tribes and nations and tongues to himself. He is more than just here the king of the Jews. He is king of all. In fact, that's what's beautiful about Daniel. The Jews really just saw this idea of Messiah. That's what they wanted. They wanted the Messiah. And they basically just saw this idea of a Jewish Messiah that would overthrow Rome. But God had like a bigger plan. This Messiah would not only save Israel, but he'd save the world. He'd actually go a lot further. What, what anger this put in them to hear this kind of a message. Now, what's interesting, notice what Stephen says. He does preach a wonderful message, taking them through the Old Testament scriptures. Beautiful sermon. Just, you know, spoiler alert, they didn't like it, right? To all these religious Jews, many of these were right there at the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, look what happens in verse 51 of Matthew of uh, Acts chapter 7. You stiff-necked people. That's a great way to kind of get people bullying, don't you think? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised and hardened ears, you do always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so did you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Verse 54, now when they heard these things, they were enraged and ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gave into the heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing, where is he standing? The right hand of the throne of God. What the Old Testament prophesied the Son of Man would do. The one who would make right all wrong that Adam had done. The one that would actually be the king and reign. Standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with, I'm sorry, keep going, verse 56. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the son of what? Notice he didn't say son of God, which wouldn't have been wrong. But he said, I see the son of man standing at the right hand of God. They cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed at him. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of the young man. Named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. And when he said this, he fell asleep. The first Christian martyr, as he's being martyred, looking into the heavens. What does he say? What does he ascribe to Jesus? He calls him the what? The son of man. He's saying, you are the only one. You're the second Adam. You're the only one that could have done this. And you did more than just suffer, 
You did more than just be executed. You are exalted. And this is how far exaltation of the Son of Man in our life goes. Why is this so important? Just about the worst anybody could do to you would probably be what? Kill you, right? Can we all agree that's kind of the worst thing someone could do to you, right? I mean, can we just kind of say, that's probably a pretty bad thing, right? Like someone killing you, that would be like the ultimate. Like someone could get you fired from your work, that's bad. But it'd probably be worse if they killed you. Can we all say amen to that, right? Like killing's bad, right? We know that. That's about the worst anybody could ever do to you. And in the midst of the worst that anybody could do to you, when your eyes are transfixed on Jesus, on the exalted Jesus, who did what you and I can't do, overcame death, hell, and the grave, when he is exalted in our life, even the worst that someone can do to you doesn't even matter. Further, look what Stephen does in the text. Falling to his knees, he cried out with a, with a loud voice, Lord, come and get him. I'm, man, I hope they get theirs. Oops, yeah, mine doesn't say that, sorry. That's the nearly inspired Nick version. <laughs> Lord, do not hold this sin, what? Now, if someone is killing you in the moment, I don't know many people that are like, Lord, forgive them, Right? But here's the deal. This son of man is so exalted. When he is so exalted and high and lifted up and everything is about his glory, it doesn't matter what people do to you, right? I mean, they can hurt you, but you just try to help them, right? You give, they try to take glory and everything's really about God's glory. You know, our biggest problem is We're glory takers. Really, all of our life is about our own glory. We don't forgive because it's about our own glory. We get angry because it's about our own glory. We don't like our lives sometimes because it's about our own glory. We don't like the things that's there because of our own glory. We don't like the way people talk to us because it's about our own glory. But when life is about the Son of Man, all we can focus on is His exaltation. And when Jesus is exalted, we aren't. And when he is high and lifted up, there is not a thing anybody can do to you that's going to get you, that's going to ultimately hurt you. Some people may harm you, but they can't hurt you. In fact, you'll even know it because your posture and response will be, Lord, forgive them for they know not what they do. So the Son of Man in the gospel text with someone you're discipling, even for our own self, it's not just a, Oh, man, Jesus was just grabbing some empty word, you know, and he didn't, you know, it just means he was a man. No, this is the one who was executed but is exalted. And if he is exalted in your life, everything's going to be all right. But here's a bigger question. So my question is, is he exalted in your life? And if he's not, I mean, you have every opportunity. That's part of him being the son of man in your life. Notice he's still the son of man today. Stephen was still calling him the son of man. But then I want to say this other thing. The bigger question is, what have we done with the son of man? Is he your Lord and King? At 16, I came to faith that Jesus was the son of man in my life. Now, to be honest with you, I didn't even know what that term or phrase even meant back then. 
But if I know what I know today at 16, that's when Jesus became the Son of Man in my life. The, the suffering, the execution that led to exaltation. Have you trusted Jesus as your Lord and King? Or is he just some guy we talk about that sometime you might read about him in, in, in your Bible or you may hear people talk? I mean, l- l- I mean just honestly, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Does anybody know what the word gospel means? Good news. Is the good news actually in your life? I mean, do you know that you know that you know that you know that Jesus is your Lord and King? Or is he just words or something we say in our church? Are you depending that you think you're saved because you've done some good things? Because if you haven't read your Bible enough or learned this, we, we're all that first Adam. We, we aren't capable of doing this. There's only one Son of Man that actually could overcome sin. Is he your Lord and King? One of, the, one of the best things that could happen for you in your life today would be that as we here in a minute have a chance to pray, sing, like trust him, call out to him. I remember, I mean, and there wasn't like flashes of lightning. There wasn't like, you know, the, there weren't like the lights weren't strobing with the Holy Spirit and angels circling my parents' living room when I came to faith. I can remember just sitting there and like all of a sudden it was like, that's it. It was like the only the Lord could reveal it to me. It was like this, wait a minute. It, it, there wasn't an audible voice, nothing of that. It was this truth from God's word that, wait a minute, I am that exchange. My righteousness for your sin. You deserve hell. You deserve my wrath. And in that moment, I was able to go, yes, I do. But thank you so much that I don't have to suffer it. I know that you have suffered and died in my place and you have risen from the dead, showing me that you beat it all. Has that happened for you in your life? Have you trusted in that? Have you followed him in believer's baptism? If you haven't followed in believer's baptism, I, I want to ask you, are you sure that you're saved? You know, a lot of times people won't follow in believer's baptism because they don't know that they truly have trusted Jesus. He's maybe just something you said to appease the family members so that they get off your back about how you asked him as savior. The best decision you'll ever make is follow the Son of Man. Would you stand together and could we pray over this? Father, what a, what a great opportunity it is for many here this morning. The Son of Man is not a reality in their life. And before it's eternally too late, I pray that no one would meet the Son of Man in his full judgment. God, thank you. For those of us that have trusted him. And let us now walk over to a life like we saw applied in Stephen's life. Let us worship the Son of Man. Let us be renewed in the idea that you have actually done something with our sin. Now we can confess. We can repent. We can have hope and trust that if you, if the wrath of God was not spared against our sin, why would we not think? that you could conform us to your image by saying no to sin and yes to you. We need to, at times, worship the Son of Man anew. Let this message help us in not only our reading of the Gospels, but those that we are discipling. Let your glory be shown as we sing back to you. Then have a time of eating, testifying, building up, and taking the Lord's Supper. And God's people said, let's stand together and sing to the Lord.